So our guest this morning is Paul Constantino AM, Chairman of CND Capital and former Chairman of Quest Apartment Hotels, a business he founded some 33 years ago and built to become the largest serviced apartment group in Australasia. By 2017, the Quest Group encompassed some 170 properties, comprising over 9,000 apartments under management, leading to the strategic acquisition of 60% of the company by Singaporean business Ascot Group for a reported $180 million. Recently, Paul officially retired as non-executive chairman and board member, though retains a 20% equity holding in the company. Today, his business interests are concentrated via his family office investment vehicle, CND Capital, a global investment fund focusing on listed private equity and credit opportunities. Paul, pleasure speaking with you this morning. Thanks for joining the program. Late last month in, in July, it was, you resigned your formal involvement within the company you built over the course of some three decades. Take me through the decision to do that and, and why you decided it was the right time to move on. And thanks, Rob, for having me. At, um I'm very honoured to be here uh, and being interviewed. You know, having been, having started the group back in 1988 and for 30 years, one of the things we looked at is finding a strategic relationship with a major player. And this happened in 2014. And we spoke to a number of investors and what we were looking at was more capital injection, not for the group, but for our property play. And um, we found it very difficult in Australia at the time to find um, the superannuation or other investors that's come on board. We knew the Ascot Group because they have been in Australia running service departments and we do know they've got a large portfolio, you know, properties all over, all over the world and a very similar business to ours. Other than theirs are operational and ours are franchise. So that's really the differential in terms of the operating platforms, but the client, the extended stay business were the same. So back in 2014, they said, okay, we're happy to support you with a capital play. Um, and that was a sum of some $500 million was to be put up for growth. But what they wanted in return was the, an opportunity to buy into the Quest Group. So with a bit of um, humming and hiring, because it was never in the intention to sell any of Quest, decided to sell 20% at that point in time and more for the ongoing growth. Um, and as time went on, Ascot became a lot more um, interested in taking extra equity in the company. Although we were growing and we are doing well, um, they were still pushing the barrow to um, you know, take more equity. And I thought at the time, look, as we've been around for a while, maybe to give them the satisfaction of the company that they're investing in and doing the properties with, maybe they should have the major share as opposed to myself. And what we did was basically reverse the table, hence the 60% that was transacted in 2017 for a sum of $180 million that's been quoted. That was the deal that basically changed the table from an 80-20, us being the 80, them being the 20, to them now being the 80 and us being the 20. One of the things we also said at the time was that we would review the position <coughs> with the 20%. How, because I always thought that 20% was more to make sure that I was comfortable with the cultures and the blending of the Ascot group and the Quest group together. And that basically took about three years to we all understood each other and move forward. And hence at the time it was basically, well, it was time for me to really um, move out. And, I, and someone asked me the question very similar, why? And it was, I said, well, it's like when you marry off your daughter, um, your son-in-law your son does like you, but 
the amount of times you go to their place isn't it starts um, you know sort of slimming out a bit and um, not as comfortable so I thought the best way to do is to let go completely you know it's there uh, and you can watch it from the side so hence uh, now coming up we've actually sold the last 20 percent to them which happened just last month which is always on the cards and and people are sort of saying, oh, look, that was a, you know, a great, you must have done a great deal to foresee the pandemic. Uh, but this deal was actually done in 2017. There was never any pandemic in sight, uh, just an enormous amount of growth. So um, hence where we're here today and moving on with the future. And tell me about the feeling now that you're out of the business. Is it a, a sense of relief? Um, look, it took a while. And it, it, it's a sense of relief in the sense that you're moving on. But sometimes it's like when anything you've been involved with for a long time, the transitioning out of it into something new, it takes that time just to let go some of the past. So um, it, ha it was difficult, <clears throat> but now I feel myself, I can move on with other opportunities out there, as opposed to still putting your head inside the business to see what's going on. Uh, but yeah, it, it is difficult. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the franchisees that I've known over the years that you know, came to us as employees and now actually are franchisee owners, own businesses worth millions of dollars. So that's been the, the, the greatest satisfaction for me, uh, to see, to look back and say what's been created. Yes, Quest is a large group, but it's the franchisees that have developed through that period of time that's been the real success story. Um, and that's what Quest was built for. It was built to build businesses for people that had a passion to develop their own wealth. So Quest was more, yes, we, I love the hospitality industry because that's where I graduated from. I didn't like food and beverage. It's just too hard to manage. Accommodation, I said, as I say to people, it's not hard to make a bed and check someone in. To cook a steak, it's a different story. So um, hence the business was all about building businesses for people that wanted to enter the hospitality industry in the accommodation part and to build wealth for themselves. And that's hence the, the, where you see the success of Quest. It's actually come from the growth and the success of our franchisees. And we have a number of potential franchisees looking for the new Quest property that comes up in another location that they want to be in. The lingering impacts of COVID in terms of border closures and lockdowns continue to have a material impact on occupancy rates, business travel and consumer confidence right across the country. What's your evaluation on the current situation and what do you see are the challenges for Australia in the short term to medium term? Look, the pandemic was amazing and it took everyone by surprise. And, and we're a company that um, started in 1988 and we've seen pilot strikes where there was no planes in the sky, where people, you know, they had army planes taking people to, you know, other states. People were travelling on trains. So we've seen the tough times of, of you know, no, the flights where the pilot strikes. We had the recession or the property crash in the 90s. We've had the SARS, we've had bird flu, we've had swine flu. We've had all these things. But what's happened this time is that they all came in one. We didn't anticipate this being a long drawn out pandemic. And we thought given the nature of our businesses, which have been very resilient through times of heartache, because even when we have, which is not, we shouldn't prosper on other people's heartaches or things that go wrong in their lives, but where there's large bushfires, floods, um, people's houses get smashed, these are people that need to be relocated. 
and service departments are part of it. Also, when you've got people in business, and our focus has always been the corporate traveller, and uh, that's the extended stay corporate traveller, which is critical for us, is that they have to travel. This is not something, oh, look, I'm not going to go to Port Douglas this year because I don't like the weather. It's, as we, as we say, is that if the boss wants you to go to Nanagoon, you're going to Nanagoon, and that's it. So uh, business was always very resilient to that. Pandemic has changed a lot of that. It's where safety, hygiene, surety has played a big part in people's um, travel. And what we've found is that the, the industry has slowed down. And I would argue it's not the pandemic that has caused the economic hardship that we're having in the hospitality industry, because other industries are booming. Um, it's we're suffering. But I think it's been by some of the decision-making by our governments, be it at a state level or at a federal level, where there is no unity in Australia. Australia was always a, a unified country. We all did things the same way. Today, we live in six different countries, basically. Everyone's doing their own thing. And that's causing the hardship. So we might say, oh, look, you know, Perth's great business to be in today, or let's go there. Well, that's fine. So long as the people that are in Perth are doing business in Perth, because no one else can get to it. Uh, and the same thing in Queensland, the same thing in New South Wales. As these borders shut, our corporates are staying home. So we're seeing a built-up of, of demand where people need to get the jobs done. But I think this whole, the way it's being managed, I think there's getting some clarity now as we move forward from the 70% vaccination to the 80%. But there's still, I think we all sit back and we still doubt whether that's real because governments and premiers make decisions at the last minute. So we may think we might have Christmas at home. That's no certainty there. So, and that's causing the hardship. And I think once we pull out of it, um, we get a bit more certainty. We will live with the virus. That's reality. So I think the sooner we all come mentally attuned to that and we look after our own body. Now, whether you want to be vaccinated or not vaccinated, that's up to you. And, but at the end of the day is that if we can, you protect yourself the way you want to, and you'll, and you'll keep doing business, and then we can move through this. You mentioned the corporate traveller there. Longer term, some commentators have speculated that the disruption to work practices, particularly through virtual meetings and even work from home stipulations, will mean that the appeal of travelling for business may be reduced over the longer term. Is that a fair assessment, or do you think it will rebound over the years ahead? I'll go back to maybe 10, 15 years ago when video conferencing came in. And that was going to kill the whole conference industry where people aren't going to go and travel anymore to conferences. In business, and uh, it's one of our values, is that one of the most important things in business is in building relationships. And sure, we can transact via Zoom, via Teams, and we can do these little things that we need to get done. But the whole nature of doing business is to build a relationship with the people that allows you to keep building business. So travel will continue. And I actually think it'll get stronger. And I look at the service department world um, is where these are the extended stay travellers. What we're finding at the moment globally, there is a shortage of skilled labour. And these are both white and blue, and whereby these people are travelling globally. And what corporations are now asking their employees is to be mobile. So you may have to relocate for the next six months to another state or to another country. That business is growing because we're seeing a shift of where we can bring skill in. It's a bit difficult at the moment because of borders and countries being closed. 
But if you see the growth globally and where the service department industry or the extended stay business is going, that's been the growth segment, even through the pandemic. Because people find the space now they can control their lives. In a hotel room, and they're needed. If I travel for one or two days, I'll stay in a hotel. I want everything done for me. If I'm travelling for a week or more, I'm happy to look after myself. And actually, in this current climate, I can do my own shopping. I don't need to go to a breakfast bar or whatever. I, if I want to eat inside, I can. In a hotel room, that's a bit difficult. You don't have those facilities and amenities there that are there for you. So I find the, the growth in that market is going to continue. I think corporate travel will continue, uh, in the, especially in the extended stay segment. And luxury travel will continue because there's an element of, of luxury travellers that will keep growing, uh, as we've seen. There's been an influx of global capital into Australia in recent years, which has ultimately changed the investor profile of those purchases of hotel and accommodation assets. What's your observ observations of the major structural changes that have occurred? What we're finding now, and I, and I go back to 2014, where the asset class, and this is 2014 and going before that, the asset class of hotels wasn't really high on the agenda in Australia. It tried to get there back in the 90s, and those that can remember the Interwest group, the Greetings group, and some other groups that were founded in Australia, these properties collapsed. And that was actually the foray of um, Accor coming into Australia, because they picked up these hotel assets that were actually closed after they were built. They never really traded. They may have traded for a short period of time. So people, our investors here in Australia were very nervous uh, some of them, the larger banks and the investment companies, had them by default because the, the mortgagee couldn't pay his bill. So they stepped in. And it wasn't until, uh, I would say, just probably in the last boom that we had in the, um, like in that hotel market where the buying spree happened, where billions of dollars being transacted every year, that people started seeing Australia as an opportunity that there will be growth in tourist numbers coming through and travellers. Because typically Australia was only seen as two cities, Melbourne and Sydney. So if you want to own a hotel, if it's not in Melbourne or Sydney, don't go there. That limited the opportunities. But what we've seen now and what um, even the investors that are coming over, there's, I'd actually argue now there's less Australian ownership in hotels than, the, than there was before. Because a lot of the assets now have been sold out. New investors are coming in who are investors from North America, America, UK, Europe, that have owned these assets before. And they understand how these assets work. Whereas in Australia, we never really had that, but they're seeing Australia also as part of the, the Indo-Pacific, the Asia-Pacific region. And that's the growth region. That's where people are traveling to do business. You know, Singapore, Indonesia, Hong Kong, they're our neighbors now, and they will travel more frequently. So the business is growing, the travel's growing, Hence, accommodation is going to be required. Um, so and one of the other things in Australia that what we've seen, and, we're, and even when Quest, when we first started developing Quest in the, probably the first 10 years, my focus was to build regionally. There weren't good assets in those regions, but what we found is that these regional towns like the Albridge of the World or Orange or Bendigo or Ballarat, they were now converting into regional centres but still had the, the old motel of the 50s. And um, our growth part was just basically, let's go into these regions. 
and hence we have the largest coverage of regions uh, throughout Australia. And even in uh, New Zealand, we can go from the South Island to the North Island because of our franchise structure as well, which allows the properties not to have to be that big. Because some of the big operators are saying, well, if it's not 150 rooms, we don't want it. We can run these things at 50 to 60 apartments, um, which makes it feasible. So it's that whole, um, you know, the whole market is, has changed. They've seen the growth of tourism um, and the, the growth in this market has, has been huge and hence the, the property market uh, from overseas is coming in, especially the major the pension funds that are coming in. Before we move on, there's been growing investment into new asset classes on a, a from an Australian perspective, including the rise of build to rent. Does this or new service providers like we've seen in the past decade, including Airbnb, pose a significant risk to the investment appeal of the service department asset class? I remember making a comment at, in the, um, one of the conferences years ago about Airbnb where you know, the hotel industry feared it. Um, where Airbnb, and when you look at it, it's not one that owns assets. What it does, it basically is a conduit for a person that wants to stay somewhere to the property. So we see it, and we use Airbnb as a, a bit like a travel agent. You put your stock on it, and typically you're in the same market because there are other homes or other apartments, and we don't get into letting out rooms per se. But yeah, I actually think the, you know, the advent of Airbnb although it has changed from that uh, little cottage somewhere in Europe that you can stay into everywhere in terms of hotels and they're trying to get into the corporate market. I'm not sure how successful that will be because the Airbnb don't really control the experience and corporate travellers really want certainty when they travel. They want to know what's in the room, how it's going to be used, um, what I've got there and more importantly, who's going to give me a key. And if I have to go to a post office box to pick up a key, probably not for me. <laughs> Let's briefly explore your background. As I understand it, you grew up in Richmond and later in Williamstown to entrepreneurial parents involved in small business via ownership of fish and chip stores, multiple fish and chip stores. Talk to me about your upbringing and the influence your parents had on your mindset in the early days. Yeah, when I look back how we, how we grew up and parents being in business um, you know, all their lives, you grow up with a different um, attitude towards how income comes into the home because there's never certainty in businesses um, and I always say that sometimes the table's full of food, sometimes it's only half full uh, and that, well, the good thing is when you're running fish and chip shops there's always something to eat. But it was the dynamic of being in control and you know, watching your father who immigrated to Australia you're a run business where you, and you support them, um, even from going to school to help them understand the language a bit better, how to do checks and all, all that things. But the thing was, is that you grew up in an environment which was about business and there was nothing certain, but the opportunity to grow, I saw it as if you really wanted to work hard, there's an opportunity here for you to grow your wealth. Um, and hence, like my father did, um, in these little fish and chip shops and whatever we did. But it was, it was probably more that whole mindset at home at, um, and having friends that their, their parents were employees. It was like very, very structured. You know, I had to be at the office or at the factory at this particular time. I finish at this particular time. I come home, I'm off to the footy on Saturday and I've got to do this on Sunday. In small business, you don't have that all the time. 
because um, you're generally working. So it's your work that actually makes up your lifestyle. You attended Williamstown High and later studied accounting and hospitality at the Footscray Institute of Technology in 1976. Take me through why these fields were appealing areas of study for a young Paul Constantino. Okay. Well, Williamstown High School is great. And those years, you had a choice between, like you either did a, a math science course or you did like a, a history social sciences course. And I didn't like the social sciences, the histories and the Englishes and all that and literature. I liked the maths, I understood maths. But as we got into um, form four, form five, this pendulum swinging in physics and the chemistry just wasn't for me. I had a meeting with my teachers um, at the end of year five and I did extremely well in maths one, maths two or methods or whatever they're called these days. Uh, and I said, look, your maths is very good, but..." you're barely going to make it to do matriculation, which was your year 12 today. Maybe you should consider something else. And a friend of mine was looking at doing something else as well, and he said, there's a course going on at the Footscray Institute, which was the old Footscray Tech at the bottom end of Nicholson Street. And it was a year, or Form 6, or Year 12 equivalent to doing your matriculation. I said, you know what, I'm going to give it a go. And um, it was an accounting course. Uh, so we still did a bit of everything else, but I just loved it uh, and uh, I did extremely well. But I couldn't see myself as an accountant. And at the same time, the, um, the actual Footscray Institute, which was on Ballarat Road at the other end of Footscray, was developing a, a hospitality course. And the hospitality course was blended between accounting that you did at the Footscray Institute and we did our practical at William Anglis. So our night time, how to cook, how to learn you know, all about food, hygiene and everything else was done there. And it was great because when you finished your course, and it was a four year course, uh, and some of those students that didn't really want to get into too much um, the hotel operational side, did one extra year and got their, eight, I think it was AASA, which was an accounting standard to get to become an accountant. I was happy to do what I did. And what I loved about it was that you're able to use your commercial knowledge um, in an operational perspective and dealing with customers. And, um, and that's really what, you know, what made it great for me. I just loved it. And one, I think we had in year three, was an industry year, an industry placement. And I was fortunate to go into a new motel that was built in Mildura. Now, I'd never been out of Melbourne. <laughs> and that was great. And what I loved was dealing with people and building relationships with people and you know, just watching that whole thing. And that's really where it all started. And then, as I understand it, your first professional role saw you working across regional hotels and motels, learning the ropes of everything from back of house to hotel management. You then began investing in hotels alongside your parents, including properties in Collingwood and Brighton. Take me through that period. Well, the, the course finished in 76, and that was really our graduation in 77. I got married in 77. And I said to my wife, who was a stenographer at a legal firm, look, yeah, I've got an opportunity to go and work for this group, um, which was based in the job, the property we are going to take was um, in Shepparton. And I said, look, how do you feel about it? And, you know, being a bit young and ignorant, we said, yep, let's go and do it, which we did. And that took us through Shepparton, Hay, Mildura, uh, all the locations to learn the ropes there. Then I eventually got a job with another company, was in Albury, running a, a property in Albury, uh, a motel, and just loved it. But then I thought to myself, look, I understand the front part of business, 
which was dealing with the customer. I said, I want to get some knowledge to work in the back of a house of a large company. And there was a uh, hotel company called the Commodore Group, which I'm not sure if you're aware of the Commodore Group, but it was around for a long, long time. They had an office which I think today could still be inflation, but the disco, that inflation property, that was our head office. Yeah, so I got a job in there and learned the back end. So I was an assistant accountant uh, with the Commodore Group. And um, yeah, did that for over a year. Then I thought, you know what? Uh, my father wanted to get into some other sort of business. Why don't we try a hotel, which we did. Um, we bought a hotel in Collingwood and uh, that was great. And then expanded into Brighton. But again, it was one of those things that there was a lot of work, a lot of variables in that business. And I wanted to do something else. And I wanted to try to get back to accommodation. So um, what happened basically then, we sold the hotels, which was good. I actually took three months off. And I thought, I've had enough of this. So I did the wax on, wax off uh, karate kid. So I painted that we had a new house in uh, way out of the city and I painted the fence for three months by hand. <laughs> it was brilliant. It calmed me down, <laughs> I thought a lot. Then I opened up a restaurant in, uh, in the city of Melbourne, which was uh, opposite the old RACV on the corner of uh, Queen Street and Little Collins Street. This restaurant wasn't doing well. My accountant rang me up and said, look, got to do something, go take this on, and, uh, which I did. And uh, named it Paul Seller House, as you do. But I only wanted a, a restaurant that would open Monday to Friday, lunches only. This started in uh, 1983. In fact, it was, about, it was the same year that Hawke came into power and they won the America's Cup. And I said, this is great. There was only a small restaurant and we had the tables spaced just enough for business meeting type lunches. So not the office groups that would come out. And it was brilliant. It was, um, we focused purely on the, um, the business market. We're you know, diagonally across from the uh, stock exchange. We had a lot of the um, finance companies, insurance companies there. And the challenge I said to our team was that we're gonna run this business, but by the end of the day, we have to know at least one person inside the business. And we have to build a relationship with that person. Now, whether you find his name by give, giving your, his American Express card or by the reservation that was taken, and we built this business purely on names to the extent that, um, and it was only, we only sat about 50 people, unless it was a function that we, we made. We only had about three companies we did fun functions for, but we, we knew it. And when we built those names, you could actually knew, knew, knew when they came down what they were gonna eat and what they were gonna drink, because typically they weren't there for the food. The food was just part of socializing a bit, but they were there for business. And the challenge we gave our team was to we're not here to delay their position to be in the restaurant as long as we want them to. It's their decision. So we want to feed them quickly, give them the drinks that they need, then their decision to stay longer is theirs. And those years where, and this was just before fringe benefits tax, you couldn't get them out. So <laughs> we used to close the restaurant around about 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. And those that drink liqueurs or ports, these were real port glasses. Like <laughs> it was a, it was a funny time in business. And as we know, the um, you know, as we went through the 80s, and during the last year of the restaurant, I, I said, "Look, this has been fun. I've loved it, but I want to get back in accommodation." And hence, uh, started Raw Gardens, uh, which was thought about liking. It was funny because we had the stock market crash in 87, which was a joy. Uh, and then um, 88, uh, beginning of 88, we started working with some of the property developers. By the end of 88, we had opened up Royal Gardens in an extended stay property. 
And as I understand it, as you said, 1988, you walked away from the restaurant business and you learnt about the success of a business called Oakford and the success they were having in the executive short-stay industry. What did you learn from their business model? So what Rob, uh, Rob Palmer that started off Oakford, uh, he was a property developer and he got caught with property and then well, how am I going to look after these? And he started um, doing these longer-term stays, more like furnished flats. And what transpired from that was that learning and understanding that it was the corporate market that was using them because they were relocating 10 or 15 people to do a project and they were putting them in these furnished flats. So hence you knew that there was a market there. What I learned is probably more from, from Rob is that location became the critical factor where people were, there's two things, one where they worked, but secondly where they wanted to stay. And his biggest growth was in the South Yarra area. And I used to say to myself, why there's no business in South Yarra unless they're retail. Retail and maybe some people selling clothes or whatever, or making um, suits and stuff. And what it was was that these people worked in the city or in the surrounding areas of Melbourne, but loved to stay in South Yarra because of the nightlife, because of the restaurants, you can go to Francoise, you can do all this sort of stuff. Uh, and that was the reason, so, so which became a fundamental part of our, uh, we built a business plan around uh, cradle to grave. So basically where, where we needed to be, and that was the locational uh, understanding, and that was critical. But as I said, that people that have failed in business, it's always been around the location. And we hear it in property all the time. It's always location, location, location. For us, it's more the location's critical, but our customer isn't there we can't count foot traffic to have a good location because our customer's a thousand miles away. So we've got to determine what is the need for that location. So one of our pillars of success was focusing on our customer to build relationship with them, to understand where they needed to be. So our locational plan was spread on the knowledge of where customers needed to be. And that's how we spread throughout all of Australia. In fact, there's probably still a third of the properties I've never seen, but we built them. And they were so successful because they were built for a customer. We're typically in the hotel industry, I'll build it and they'll come and stay because they want to come to Melbourne. Well, you could go and build a property in one of these regional towns, <laughs> probably never stay. But so it was, very, it was very focused and hence it was a business model. It was all around the customer. And probably one of our successes in terms of the, the franchisee, the ability of the business system that we built, had true clarity around the customer. Who are the customers that had, had their people that needed to travel for extended periods of times and in which locations? Where did they need to be? And the same thing, where infrastructure was spread throughout the regions was where they needed accommodation. And that's where we went. And reflecting on the launch of Quest and the appeal of the franchisee model, you've previously referenced McDonald's saying, I looked at what was happening in America and it was all about leverage. Tell me about the benefits of the franchise model back then and then what is still so successful today. Well, with, um, with franchising, and as I said right at the beginning, is that franchising is whereby you build a system that you can then basically duplicate and where that property needs to be. But it's done under a business model and it's not just about accommodation. And one of the things I learned about McDonald's, it wasn't about the U-Butte hamburger. 
It was around the whole amenity of McDonald's and where these were located. And they will deal a lot on foot traffic because they need to be where people can see them. And what they also did was part of the business model is what the franchisee had to do. So a franchisee didn't need to be a chef to run a McDonald's store. In our business, you don't need to be a hotel manager to run a Quest, Quest business. And as I've said to a lot of potential franchisees, if you've come here because you want to become a great hotel manager, it's cheaper to go to Victoria University and get a degree. <laughs> um, only one of these, are, you know, you've got to know why buying it. And it's all about building wealth. So franchising and leverage is whereby I like this industry, I want to own my own business, and I'm prepared to invest in myself to make it happen, but I need the skills and the disciplines to follow. So the procedures that we build in how to answer the phone, in how to make a bed, in how to do the, the whole running of a property is systemised. What we want you to do is do you have the ability to build relationships with your customer? And that's what makes the, the success. As the business grew, so did your appetite for investment with new Quest properties opening throughout Australia, in particular in regional areas including Townsville, Newcastle, Geelong, Phillip Island. Talk to me about the fundamentals you considered prior to site selection, understanding end users and then market positioning. So basically, and this is this whole thing about the locational knowledge, we've always said is that the customer is key. So by understanding your customer, building, your customer, building the knowledge around your customer and the relationship. So if we're going to do business with, say, BHP, we'll understand where BHP needs to be. And we'll understand what parts of their travel requirements are based on longer term stay. Because if they're purely based around, oh, we travel a lot, but only for one night, then it's not for us. Or we only go to conferences. Well, not for us. But this is the business we do in terms of our project teams. So we focus around that and understanding where they're doing their next projects. So when we go to areas like Townsville, we would have had some of the companies we deal with. So we also have projects that go on in Townsville. Now that they could be piling, they could be defence, being a big defence area. There's the, there's the industries that service defence. So we then explore that. So what we're saying is that if there are a number of industries within that township, with a number of companies that are going there to do work, we then analyse that with the type of product in terms of extended stay, the amenity that they need to look after themselves, and we build a model on how we, how we build that. So when you look at a Quest property, if you go into inside a Quest property in any one of those locations, they all look the same. The differential is when you come into the town and you see the property, it might look a bit different, it might be next to water, it might be in the middle of the city, that's the only thing that really changes. But the internals, because what we know and what the corporate knows, is what they're going to get and what they expect. And that's the fundamental. The business continued to grow into the 21st century with expansion into major international markets, including London, Auckland and Fiji. Walk me through how you went about identifying opportunities in those global markets and then why you selected those markets to move into. It started with New Zealand, um, because we all thought 20 odd years ago we were geniuses. And uh, we said, we're going to go to New Zealand and we're going to show these Kiwis how to do it. Probably one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made. And we, we took over two properties that were based in Auckland, or one in Auckland, one in Wellington, and um, we set our ways, not realising there was a whole cultural differential between us and them. And we really had to learn on how they did business and how we were to build relationships. And our biggest mistake is that we went in and told them, 
this is who we are, look what we can do for you. And which was strange why we did that, because typically when we go, and this is one of the things I learned back in the days of running motels. So when you went to a new town, the biggest challenge I have is to be accepted into the community. That should be, and, and part of the whole business model we have Quest is to do that. So we become part of the community first. They will then acknowledge whether they accept you. But we were too big for our boots, we knew, so what they, and they didn't accept us. So we had to change our approach. And what we did by building relationships with the corporates, with the communities, and, and helping just the basic communities, be it the schools, be it the churches, be it, you know, just communities at large, that became the strength. And what that turned out to be was that rather than them coming or them looking at Quest as an Australian business, it's now, it's a New Zealand business. It's their brand. So we have now four and a half million people or five million people in New Zealand that come and stay at their brand when they come in Australia. So their alignment is back to Quest here in Australia. But we had to get accepted first. And when we went to the UK, we did the same thing. UK, a bit harder, a bit further away, and sort of hit us right with the pandemic at the same time. But it's the same approach. Because in business, and I think one of the things that the accommodation business is about, it's about the experience and about the, you know, how you recognise your customers and respect your customers. And building that builds that true business value of building a relationship whereby it's a bit like when you look at Facebook, Facebook is nice and we can all get online, but the thing is there's no true, there's no true trust there. So I don't trust the person on the other side. I like what he says, but that's about it. And by having, uh, building relationships with corporates and you become part of the barbecue chat and you're talking about where you're staying, you do that with trust. So building up that word of mouth at a physical sense is your true business wealth that you create. Let's talk about the physical configuration of Quest properties. What was the process you undertook in terms of designing and configuring both the hotels themselves, but then also the individual rooms? How do you know what you wanted? I think with most, and this is where probably we find a lot of hotels being built. And it was been old saying years ago that a lot of property developers have made a lot of money, <coughs> went out and built hotels because that was their monument to themselves from all the success of doing other developments, but never truly built. Um, for the customer. What we did was basically look at what the customer needed. And when we started, like at Royal Gardens, which was a pre-built building, um, and we just came in there more from a tenancy perspective, they were large. And as we kept looking at what the customer needed, we were able to reduce the size of those rooms to what the customer needed. So two bedroom didn't have to be 12 squares. It could be seven squares. So that all become then with the efficiency and the financial return of the building because everything's got to be built for a return. What the customer wanted in terms of the amenity, in making sure that they had that in the space provided, you then did a plate, a model, which basically said, this is how it looks. And one of the things we found, found over time under the franchise model, it tends to operate much better between the 80 and 90 number of apartments, as opposed to larger ones or smaller ones. And that's the efficiency because it runs under a franchise model. If they're under management, could be 150, could be 200. Is there a risk then that with so many of these new CBD hotels being built in Melbourne and Sydney, that they're being built just for the purposes of the developer wanting to move into an asset class rather than really understanding the hotel and accommodation sector? I think there is a degree of that. And a lot of these planned hotels, especially in Melbourne, 
and Sydney were on the back of a very strong conference market and event market and also a leisure market. Um, but, and a lot of the Chinese groups that were coming over, a lot of it was built around that. And you've really got to be very careful, is that, is that a sustainable business model? And because what we find is that there will become a point of saturation. And, and as we're going through the pandemic, where the demand is low and it will rise, will it pick up the additional supply that's there? And I, I, it, it will in time, um, but I think there's going to be a rationalisation where, and there's an old saying in the, in the hotel industry is that, you know, what was your five star a few years ago becomes your four star today um, with the advent. So returns then change. And uh, some of the smarter operators are actual investors that are coming out buying um, hotel properties are probably buying that three and a half, four star and giving it a refurb. When you come in at a five star level or a six star level, I don't think we've got a strong enough luxury market at the moment that wants to pay that price. But the event market's been great for us, but there's no more events. There will come in time, but you can't just turn the tap on and say, oh, look, we know we've got 6,000 people going to the convention centre. Now, those conferences take a few years to, <laughs> to, to get a hold of. So they're, they're, well, I think there will be an oversupply, but I still believe the, the extended stay market uh, will grow, irrelevant who's got the brand, because people will still have to do business. That, that's like a non-discretionary thing. That's something that I've got to do. Whereas if I'm a, a discretionary spender, you know what, I'll probably stay home this year. I might just might do it locally. I might just chuck the kids in the boot and off we go. And those things change. Now, one of the biggest mistakes we made, not only in New Zealand, but I thought that being such a good business model, we could go to Port Douglas. And sort of goes back to your point on white corporate. So we built a very good corporate base of businesses and everyone said, you've got to go to Port Douglas. And, and I forget, it was probably about 90, 93, 94, somewhere around there where the, where the Japanese were coming into town. So where we had the Chinese recently, the Japs were coming. And the Japanese were great spenders, loved the resource, they were building golf courses, hotels all throughout Queensland um, and even in Sydney. And so I said, you've got to go there, you've got to do it because they're never going to stop flying in. JLL's going to keep flying in every day. The day we opened, they stopped. So market just died. But I thought, that's fine. We'll get the local domestic market will come. Not realising that we thought because we had the corporate market and our corporate properties were doing really well, that we'll just put a brochure in the room and our corporate traveller will take that brochure home to his spouse, to his family, say, look where we're staying next week. Biggest mistake we made in our lives because decisions for leisure travel are not made by the business traveller. It's made by the person at home. And because that person will read the new idea, will watch the morning show. So to influence that person is completely different to the way we influence the corporate traveller. And we lost it completely. And that thing bled for 10 years. But it was a great learning experience. Stay true to your core. If your core business is corporate extended stay travel, don't do the other stuff. Sure, 20% of your business will come from leisure. We have a strong, what we call visiting friends and relatives market, where people want to travel. There might be a, a netball tournament on, might be a basketball tournament on for our kids in other states, and they travel. And even some of our junior uh, sporting associations, be it hockey, whatever, they travel a lot, and that's good business for us. It's not true core business, but business, because it's extended stay, it's great. But if we take our sights off and say, well, we're going to go into this leisure market, 
because leisure's paying a lot more. As you said before about the amenity, our amenities haven't been built for the leisure market. When you're a leisure traveller, you want to go to reception, you need a concierge there, you need some other people there because a tourist is bored. So they're going to spend more time at the reception desk than a corporate traveller. A corporate just want to get to his room, get to his next appointment. And um, you miss it. So you miss your whole business model because you think you're going to be in that leisure market. The franchise model itself has been implemented both successfully and unsuccessfully over the years by a whole suite of different businesses. What are the keys in terms of building strong relationships with franchisees? Just that. I think that's the most important. What we tend, and we lose sight of, as franchisors, about the true business operating model that we have is about franchisee success. So your model has to be showing a franchisee how to be successful. By doing that, they then deliver the guest experience and making your brand a lot stronger because they're focusing on building wealth through a very standard, disciplined and committed way in running that business. And that's what sometimes franchisors forget. They think, oh, look, I've got a great brand. Why don't I just go and spread it all through the country? And that can be in any type of franchise, whether it's donuts, whether it's hamburgers. People just forget about it. It's about the franchisee because you don't have managers there. And if you want to kill your brand, don't support your franchisee because he came there because of you, had the knowledge, and they wanted to leverage your experience and knowledge of that business and that market so they could be successful. I want to ask, reflecting on the journey you've been on for the past 33 years, what have been the major challenges and headwinds and how have you been able to navigate these and stay persistent and, and get through those challenging times? I think one thing in life I've learnt is that that's the norm. The norm is you're going to be confronted by headwinds. We're going to have obstacles in our road. We're going to have all these things that are going to come from the side that we're not looking out for. Where you want to be, and, and I say the same thing to the franchisees today, is that yes, we have a pandemic and it doesn't matter what you do today, that's not going to change. But what you can change is to be in control of where you want to be. You must always have a 12, 3, 5 year plan because that actually then gives you the pathway in terms of you being successful. And I, and I sort of preface this back to when you're learning how to drive, and a driving instructor was telling me many, many years ago, if you focus on the kerb so you don't hit it, or you focus on the witch's hat so you don't hit it, 99% of the time you're going to hit it. So in life, if your focus is purely high interest rates, then we'll, when we opened Royal Gardens, we were paying 20 plus percent interest rates. Unheard of. It was like a secured partner. But we did it. We built it. We built that business. We built the group. So we're living in an environment with low interest rates. People are still failing. So it's not about interest rates. So as we go through these things, if you stay true to where you want to be, you'll get through it. Don't focus on the obstacle because there's always a way around it. And sure, the pandemic's here. But are we ready when we go through it? And I would argue there's a lot of businesses out there today are thinking that once the pandemic's over, it's going to be, whew, everything's going to go back to normal. It won't. And as we're doing with some of the new things going forward in the next growth of, of where I want to go, 
the industries are changing. And we actually said that back to our franchisees four or five years ago. The industries that we have today that what we're servicing in terms of their needs and locations won't be the same industries that will be at the front. They'll be different. And the operators within those industries, the companies with that will be different. So what we have to focus on, what is that? We have to now understand what those industries are. And it's the same thing when we talk about corporates. I said for our growth in terms of growing new locations from companies, we need to also understand that our new corporate is just finishing his school. He will come into the market. His expectations, his needs will be completely different to our current corporates because age does that. We now work, walk around with tablets, we've got devices. So in our room, we were able to get rid of a lot of the um, mechanical stuff. And you know, The TV actually became the major part of our, our, our property now. Why? Is because it's where everyone connects to. You will screen or stream all your information on that TV. What you want is a high level, high definition television that allows you to do that. So when you're coming back from work, you don't want to get out your laptop. You'll just take out your iPad, you'll flick it on, there's all your work you've got to get done, you get it done. So what we used to say is that it's no longer the, the, you know, the bed and breakfast, the B&B, it's bed and broadband. The strength of your broadband will determine the satisfaction of a corporate client. Because you want to piss them off, <laughs> have weak broadband. <laughs> now, you mentioned the next phase of growth. We're in the offices of your new business or current business, C&D Capital. Where do you see your interests lie outside of the services accommodation sector nowadays with this business and what sort of opportunities are you looking at in the current market? What we're looking at with C&D is, um, is setting up an investment fund that focuses on a number of industries that we're seeing that are transitioning. Uh, and we're seeing it through green energy, we're seeing it through even through some of the, um, what were the, the old manufacturing industries, that you look at the new ones now, the manufacturing companies that are you know, building the, the drones and all, all the, you know, the, the next level of technology. So we're looking at where technology is going in terms of what we should invest with. So being an investment company, we're using the skill set of understanding people, because as we analyse companies, one is to understand what industry they're in and what technology they're providing and, and what they're actually doing. The other part is to understand the executive team and the culture of the executive team. So we're making informed decisions about investing with companies that have similar values and culture to us and in industries that are growing at probably at the junior stage at the moment, but we believe in the people, we believe in their ideas and what their lack of is probably capital so we're happy to support in that process. So it's understanding that. And there's a lot of, you know, we're now talking, I think it was in the paper today, with the hydrogen being becoming a next energy level. So there's just so much happening at the moment. And, the, and you can't be in everything. And I think the way we used to invest in the old days is pick a stock and hopefully it did well. You go and buy your BHPs, your banks. Those days, you know, they're still there, but it's not going to give you the true uh, growth that you want because it's the other business, and we've seen it with the afterpays of the world. I'm not saying that's the type of company we want to invest with, but it's those companies that are out there that are doing it. Um, so this whole appetite of where people are investing their money, it's to have that knowledge so we can build an investment fund that is based on emerging companies, emerging industries, industries that are transitioning. 
for the next 5, 10, 15 years and building up a discipline in the office that focuses on that knowledge. Not, I heard down the road that, uh, that you know, it's a great stock, it's going to go up next week. Have you been around? Have you been through the 87 stock market? It doesn't work. And the fund itself, is that essentially going to function like a private family office or is that open to outside capital? At this stage, it's uh, purely as a family office, um, but there is an intent there that will open up to other family offices to invest in the fund. But again, that will be done on a very similar understanding that um, it's not open to everyone um, because we're, we're not, we don't want to be a retail fund but there will be some private clients that we will probably have relationships with already that may want to become part of it. And, and the fund itself is very, it's passive. It's not an aggressive fund. So we're not looking at trying to pick a stock or pick an industry that's going to you know, double today. It's more around what is the long-term future of these companies? Because one of the things I want to be able to leave behind is probably more generational wealth. So, and you know, I've currently got five grandchildren, um, another one coming on the way. So my beneficiaries are actually growing. <laughs> so you've got to build something that whereby you've done all the hard work. It's to make sure that it grows and not in a fast rate. It's just in a very passive and understanding that you're moving with the times at the same time. Final question to finish. What do you see are the opportunities for Australia in the long term and equally what are the challenges that you see either on the immediate term horizon or later down the track? I think the opportunities for Australia are immense. We're a country that people want to live in. We're a country that people want to work in. We sit in, I would say, one of the most prosperous regions, be it the Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific areas. We've got it all here. The difficulty we've got and the frustrations that we have today, it's how we, as a country, bond together. And if I look at the way where the country's being run, it's, um, it's not what we would have experienced over the years. We always thought we had, you know, one prime minister, one leader of a country. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. So I think we've got to get, we've got to become a lot more as a country unified. So then we become not just a force to compete in the overall market in terms of the global market. It's more about how we work with the global market? How do we interact and trade with the local market or the global market? Because that's where our, our value comes from. It's by building things and servicing the rest of the world and vice versa. So you know, Australia, doesn't matter where you go in the world, you'll always come back home because this is a great place. And the opportunities for us are immense, are immense. But we sometimes I think we've become, Australians become complacent maybe because of the summer, I don't know, but. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we, I think it's probably too much complacency as opposed to getting out there and getting it done. And we see the young kids today, you, you've got to be proud that when you look at some of these public companies out of Australia that have gone onto the global market and to see how they perform. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant for 25 million people. And we do it in the sporting world as well. We've got some really top end um, sporting people and we only got a small group to choose from. Um, and we do it so well. So we are, when we're focused, we're focused. <laughs> well said. Well, Paul Constantino, AM, pleasure speaking with you this morning. Fascinating story of business success and, and really an icon on the Australian corporate history and Australian corporate um, uh, guest list, I suppose. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much, Robert. That's great. Thank you.